also interference, another common reason for memory loss that's referred to as an interference effect, which is a retrieval error caused by the existence of other, usually similar information. Interference can be classified by its direction. So when we experience proactive inter interference, old information is interfering with new learning. Um, retroactive interference is when new information causes forgetting of old information. So a way of preventing retroactive interference is to reduce the number of interfering events, which is why it's best to study in the evening about an hour before falling asleep, which I don't know if that's really true, but there's that. Um, aging doesn't necessarily lead to significant memory loss. Um, it's not always the case for people to lose memory in old age. Um, certain types of memory can remain quite strong, so people tend not to just demonstrate much degeneration, recognition, or skill-based memory as they age. Um, semantically meaningful memory material can be easily learned and recalled. Um, so older people usually have a larger semantic network than their younger counterparts. Then we've got prospective memory, which is remembering to perform a task at some point in the future, which remains mostly intact when it's event-based, so it's primed by a trigger event, like buying milk when you walk past the grocery store. And then we have memory reconstruction. So memory is usually like a record of our experiences um, that can be stored to be accessed later, and it's defined as reproductive memory. Nothing could be further from the truth. Reconstructive memory is a theory of memory recall in which cognitive processes such as imagination, semantic memory, and perception all affect the act of remembering. So this theory explains how two people can recall the same event as occurring in completely different ways, and a memory that incorrectly recalls actual events or recalls events that never occurred is known as a false memory. And they're common and they could be expected when we consider the many factors that can affect memory. Um, so, Repressed memories that are memories stored in the unconscious mind and blocked from recall have also been a topic of controversy, so they can be brought back into our conscious mind either spontaneously or through psychotherapy, and they're called recovered memories, but it's not possible to distinguish between false memories and recovered memories without evidence and some research. Um, false memory production is not only limited to internal factors, it can also be affected by outside sources. Um, so. There's a misinformation effect where a person's recall of an event becomes less accurate due to the injection of outside information into the memory and can be seen at the point of recall as well. So there can be like in an automobile accident video, some participants asked how fast were the cars moving and how fast were they when they crashed. And if you use from this experience, if they used leading language, they were more likely to overstate the severity of the accident than those had, who had been asked the question with less descriptive language. Excuse me. So intrusion errors refer to false memories that have included a false detail into a particular memory. So this is similar to the misinformation effect, but distinct in that the intrusion error is not from an outside source. It's injected into the original memory due to both memories being related or sharing a theme. And then when we recall the memory, the brain incorrectly associates the intruding memory with the source memory leading to a false memory. And then source monitoring error involves confusion between semantic and episodic memory. A person remembers the details of an event, but confuses the context under which those details were gained. Source monitoring error often manifests when a person hears a story of something that happened to someone else, and then later calls the story actually happened to him or herself, which is not true. So we'll finish off with the neurobiology of learning and memory. Um, as infants, we are born with a lot more neurons than we actually really need, and as our brains develop, neural connections form rapidly in response to stimuli via a phenomenon called neuroplasticity, 
or neuroplasticity. So the brains of young children are so plastic that they can reorganize drastically in response to injury. Um, and then while our, brain, our brains do maintain a degree of plasticity throughout our lives, adult brains display nowhere near the degree of plasticity as those of a child. There's synaptic pruning. As we grow older, weak neural connections are broken, while strong ones are bolstered, increasing the efficiency of our brain's ability to process information. So this is important um, because, as we learned before, stimuli cause activation of neurons, which release their neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft, the gap between a neuron and a target cell. These neurotransmitters continue to stimulate activity until degradation, reuptake, or diffusion out of the synaptic cleft. In this interim, this neural activity forms a memory trace that is thought to be the cause of short-term memory. And if the stimulus isn't repeated or rehearsed, then the memory trace disappears and the consequence is the loss of the short-term memory. But if the stimulus is repeated, then the simulated neurons become more efficient at releasing their neurotransmitters and at the same time, receptor sites on the other side of the synapse increase, increasing receptor density. The strengthening of neural connections through repeated use is also known as long-term potentiation and is believed to be the neurophysiological basis of long-term memory. So, basically this whole process is that a memory can begin as a sensory memory in the projection area of any given sensory modality. This is a brief memory, unless it's maintained in consciousness and moved as a short-term memory into the hippocampus and the temporal lobe, which can then be manipulated through working memory while in the hippocampus in tandem with the frontal and parietal lobes, and even sort of for later recall. Over long periods of time, memories are gradually moved from the hippocampus back to the cerebral cortex, and yeah, we'll go through the concept summary now, which is pretty brief. So we'll start off with learning. Um, habituation is the process of becoming used to a stimulus. Dishabituation can occur when a second stimulus intervenes, causing a resensitization to the original stimulus. Associative learning is a way of pairing together stimuli and responses or behaviorals and consequences. In classical conditioning, an unconditioned stimulus that produces an instinctive unconditioned response is paired with a neutral stimulus, when with repetition, the neutral stimulus can become a conditioned stimulus that produces conditioned response. In operant conditioning, behavioral is changed through the use of consequences. Reinforcement increases the likelihood of a behavior and punishment decreases it. Schedule of reinforcement affects the rate at which the behavior is performed, so schedules can be based on either a ratio of behavior to reward or an, on an amount of time and can be either fixed or variable. Behaviors learned through variable ratio schedules are the hardest to extinguish. And then we have observational learning or modeling, which is the acquisition of behavior by watching others. Um, encoding is the process of putting new information into memory. It can be automatic or effortful. Semantic encoding is stronger than both acoustic and visual encoding. Sensory and short-term memory are transient and based on neurotransmitter activity. Working memory requires short-term memory, attention, and executive function to manipulate information. Long-term memory requires elaborate rehearsal and is a result of increased neuronal connectivity. We've got explicit declarative memory, which stores facts and stories, and then we have implicit non-declarative memory that stores skills and conditioning event effects. Um, facts are stored via semantic networks. Recognition of information is stronger than recall, and retrieval of information is based on priming interconnected nodes of the semantic network. Memories can be lost through disorders like Alzheimer's, Korsakoff syndrome, or agnosia, decay, or interference. And memories are highly subjected to influence by outside information in the, both at the time of encoding and at recall. So both learning and memory can rely on changes in brain chemistry and physiology. 
Um, the extent of which depends on neuroplasticity, which decreases as we age, and then long-term potentiation, which is responsible for the conversion of short-term to long-term memory, is the strengthening of neuronal connections resulting from increased neurotransmitter release and adding of receptor sites. So, looks like that's it for this chapter. Um, I'll catch you guys in the next one when we're going to go through cognition, consciousness, and language, which is a very heavy one.